Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst. With me to look ahead at the upcoming year in politics is my colleague, political editor, Adam Payne, and special guest this week, Natasha Clark, Chief Political Correspondent at The Sun. So after a pretty mad 2022, we've been looking ahead to 2023 and trying to answer the five sort of big questions around British politics. Um, Starting off with, you know, Rishi Sunak at the end of 2022 announced his plan to try and end the asylum backlog. Really, the question is, you know, is his focus on the small boat crisis going to pay off? Um, Tash, starting with you, let's just talk through that policy that was outlined in December and kind of the politics behind it, really, and why Sunak has chosen this to be one of the big focuses of his beginning of his premiership. It's a really interesting one, isn't it? Um, I remember when I interviewed him on the plane to Egypt going to COP, and obviously for our readers, for Sun readers, it's it's obviously such a, a, a huge topic, the small boats crisis and something that's really important to them. Um, and I was really surprised to hear him say, you know, this is one of my absolute top priorities that I'm that I'm working on in government. Um, and, you know, I've, because you wouldn't think naturally that would be one no. of his policies, the sort of thing that he'd be interested in. No, right? definitely. It's not naturally sort of I think his his sort of stomping ground. It's also like he's never been Home Secretary, so he's probably never had to sort of see this um, up up close. But I think what he realised was when he became Prime Minister, he realised that he had to tackle some of the, the top priorities that the Conservative Party as a whole wanted him to deal with. Um, but also it was a good way to reach across to the right of the party uh, and to focus on some of the the issues that, that they cared about too. Um, and obviously bringing in his, um, his Home Secretary back, obviously Suella Bravman, was a pretty controversial choice um, for him to make. And, and at the time he did get a lot of stick for that and I think it's still yet to be seen sort of what her impact is, is going to be. Um, but last week we saw that, you know, he made this statement himself in the House of Commons. He's really staked his premiership on whether he can solve this small boats crisis and whether he can really get a grip on it. And um, he made some pretty bold promises, um, you know, getting the asylum backlog claims down by basically the end of the year, end of 2023, um, is a pretty big task and it's it's quite daunting and you know it's a bit like reminds me a bit of when we we're in the pandemic and Matt Hancock said yes I'll get to 100,000 tests a day um, and that was a pretty big target. Yeah you, you make yourself a bit of a hostage to fortune don't you by by putting in something like that because it does mean that if we were to be speaking this time next year and the backlog has you know not come down maybe even gone up if, if things get really bad you know how you know you're then gonna have to try and sort of spin that and say well look this is my one of the big things I said I was gonna do and actually it's not happened yet yeah definitely and, and he obviously he and Sewell have been working up this plan and there's lots of aspects to it um they want to put in more caseworks to try and drive that backlog down they want to ch- essentially get to change the law uh, we expect that to be coming uh, shortly um in the new year to to try and basically if, if you come to the UK legally, aka on a small boat, which they've now deemed to be an illegal act, um, you will no longer be able to stay in the country. So it's pretty tough talking. It's a pretty ambitious plan. I'm sure there's some bits that will probably make a difference, some bits that might not. But I think he realises, and I think, you know, Suella Bravman realises that this is just one thing that's it's not just one silver bullet solution. There's probably lots of little things that they can do to try and make an impact. Um, and yeah, like he's staking his premiership on this. If in another 12 months he he can't be shown to, to voters to have driven down those numbers, then that's really going to you know be a problem for the Tory party, you know, come the next election. Yeah, adamant. And on this, obviously, I, I guess part of the thing is, is that he's inherited a pretty fractious and fractured Conservative Party. We've seen that there have been 
dividing already on various things like you know housing and and uh onshore wind and lots of other of other issues it does feel as though perhaps one of the reasons maybe that, that sunak has chosen this as a big part of his uh premiership is that it's the one real sort of a subject area that actually conservative mps are quite united on and perhaps is that part of the politics behind it, that he's chosen a topic that he thinks that actually pretty much everyone in the party is behind him on, on dealing with this I think that's a very good point. And you actually look at what number 10, the government has actually done since Sunak came into Downing Street. It hasn't really done that much. Um, when, you, when you're in Westminster, a lot of people joke about how boring it is at the moment. I mean, partly because we've all, we've all got withdrawal symptoms from the chaos of um, the rest of the year. But if you look at what the government's actually done heading into Christmas, um, obviously the cost of living is the number one story. Um, we've had this announcement on small boats and how to how, how to how to how to tackle that but the government hasn't really done much else and when you speak to people in Downing Street they say that you know heading into Christmas they had some objectives one they wanted to deal with the bread and butter issues which right now they see as a cost of living and small boats and two they wanted just to avoid yeah. Tory party infighting they, they they just want things to be calm and um, as convivial as possible heading into the new year. So we, you, Alan, you referenced um, house building and onshore wind, uh, two issues on which government struck a compromise with backbench MPs. Now, one reading of that is, oh, it's another example of how this isn't really an 80-seat majority and how the Tory party is so fractious and how perhaps um, beholden to them Rishi Sunak is. But alternatively, you could read it as, an example of party management, um, just trying to keep everyone calm um, heading into that new year. But this policy, and I think Tash, I mean, it can't really add much yeah. to what Tash said, really. It's about delivery, isn't it? It's all about delivery. When you're setting such an ambitious target, particularly when it's such a visual story. Mm. I think, it's, you know, because we've seen the rhetoric has got stronger and stronger over the past couple of years. Yeah. But the actual delivery of it has got worse and worse. Exactly. You know, the, the, 2022 saw a record number of people arriving by small boats and we saw the backlog exactly. balloon at the same time as the government was talking tougher than it has ever talked about dealing with this issue. Yeah, and, and I mean, governments, successive governments have announced lots of things. I mean, it's all well and good announcing things and, and it's worth saying the announcements have been broadly welcomed by people who are very you know passionate about this, but it is about delivery. Yeah. And if come the next election, there are still images of um, boats crossing the channel um, another element of this, of course, is, is the plan to um, is to house people who come over in like disused holiday parks. Now that I, I mean, I think it was reported this week some disquiet um, from MPs in those areas. If you have like a, a I don't know a disused pontins in Southport, for example, and the local press is picking up in images of um, people being housed there, it's still a risk. And of course, we have um, the sort of perennial spectre of Nigel Farage who sort of refuses to go away now right now the reform party I still think has sort of little public profile but if if Farage decides to become a lot more closely associated with it become a lot more vocal and essentially become the face of reform if reform essentially becomes known as the Farage party and they decide essentially to be a single issue party on small boats and the issue by the time next leisure comes around the issue is still very much salient the public feels the government hasn't dealt with it then electorally um there's clearly a big risk there as well 
Yeah, I and mean, just before we move on to the, the second kind of one, I think uh, related to this is a, a question about the, the Reform Party and, and Tash. Obviously, we've got local elections in, in May. Do you think that they're going to be targeting that and using kind of this immigration issue or the failure to tackle immigration as, as kind of the key kind of recruiting sergeant for the Reform Party at the ne- those next elections? Yeah, I think I think so. And, you know, I guess the risk for the Conservative Party is that we have another um, sort of UKIP Brexit Party sort of situation where we had a couple of years ago where Nigel Farage and a good chunk of the population didn't feel like the Conservative Party were where they wanted to be uh, on Brexit. Uh, And you could see that happen again on immigration. Um, However, however, it's actually a little bit it's a little bit more complicated and complex than that because we've seen, like, you know, you mentioned just now, Adam, successive governments, you know, Pretty Patel was pretty hard line yeah. um, mm-hmm. on the small boats, I think. That didn't mean that she got things done in the end of the day. So it, it's more of a, you know, I guess it might be more, like I say, more in terms of delivery and, and more in terms of actually showing those those numbers go down. And obviously, you know, when we're in a cost of living crisis, those these tensions really do get heightened. And we're seeing this from Conservative MPs as well, who, you know, have become this, uh, it's, there's become this sort of new uh, sort of small boats nimbyism. We don't want our these small boat hotels in, in our back garden sort of thing, hasn't it? Um, which I think could be a real problem, especially um, because, you know, it means that the public are now seeing the effects of the small boats right on their doorstep in their constituencies. It doesn't matter where in your country you are. You're now seeing um, your own migrant hotels um, in your area. And I think that really does make a difference. Mm. Yeah, we'll, we'll come on to kind of, I think, Tory party unity or lack of it uh, l- later on. But but yeah, I think that you touched on that, Adam, that kind of the, one of the other big kind of issues is the economy and the, the cost of living crisis. I think the kind of the the second big question is, is will the economy be in a better position by the end of 2023 at the, the start of it? And, you know, whether recession, not just can it be staved off, but how shallow and how short that recession could be and, and what the government can do in that to get the economy growing. We talked about nimbyism, we talked about house building. You know, one of the things that the government can do to try and Im- improve growth is by getting things going, by getting infrastructure being built. And obviously also, again, the kind of impact of the of the strikes, you know, where do you kind of see the economy being by the end of this year, Adam, you know, do you think we are going to be in a better place? You know, is inflation going to come down or are we still going to be talking about, you know, dealing with these these massive problems in the economy by the end of the year? God, what, what a question, Alan. Um, well, I, <laughs> yeah, I didn't say it was going to be easy. I didn't say it was going to be easy. Me. That's not very Christmassy at all. Um, so, well, I think it, it is predicted by the OBR, isn't it, that inflation will come down um, yeah. next year. What is it? Is, is it around 10 or 11% now? Um, yeah we're still in double digits yeah yeah and i believe is expected to start falling early next year and then perhaps by the end of next year is it around three percent something like that i'm sure our um thorough uh, listeners will fact check me on that but yeah uh, well so it, it, it's predicted to inflation is predicted to come down um and i know there is a hope within government that by the time the spring budget comes around um when Rishi and Jamie Hunt will f- perhaps flesh out in a bit more detail what they actually want to do with you know the time they have in power potentially very limited time if you lose the next election there is a, there is a hope in government that by the time that comes around if the global economic situation is a bit better if inflation has come down they'll have a bit more fiscal headroom to play with um, yeah. in, in 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 that statement and perhaps Set out and I guess that's part of the reason why they were so bleak in the autumn statement was to give themselves a bit of wiggle room if things do improve in the, in, in the new well, year. Well, exactly. Right? And, you know, there is a there is a theory doing around that Rishi Sunak might just have enough headroom to perhaps 
cut some taxes right before the next general election. So you, you can kind of... Which was, which was originally as planned back in the day before before any of the kind of chaos of 2022. That was yeah. originally their kind of plan, wasn't it? To try and pull a rabbit out yeah. just before the next so, election. So you, you, can, you can kind of... So taking in all of that into account, you can kind of see how this plays out and you can kind of see the Tory narrative around it of, look, you know, you, you stuck with us. We got through the hard times. Now the sunlit uplands away. But I think... Beyond that, it's really about how people feel, isn't it? Like, yeah. like people like us can sit here and say, oh, you know, inflation's down to 6%. That's brilliant. Or look at GDP or look at growth or whatever. But it's about how people feel and what's in their pockets. And yeah. do, do their lives feel like they're getting better? And I feel like... That's yeah, and, and, if, and if, if energy bills are still way higher, you know, then I think that's, that's kind of the, one of the big things, isn't it? So although things may improve numerically, um, are they improving in real life terms? Um, or will that take a while to catch up? And given the next election is in some point in 2024, I think that's a risk for the Tories. That although yeah. on a screen, um, or you know, or according to your OBR or whoever, things might be getting better. But has that improvement? Is that improvement being felt in people's lives? Yeah, I think for me, Tash, one of the un- unanswered questions, I suppose, is how big an impact is rising interest rates going to have because obviously interest rates are continuing to go up millions of people are on fixed rate mortgages that are going to be they're going to be every month more and more people come off their fixed rate their two or five year fixed rate and have to re-mortgage and i think the longer that goes on the more impact i guess we'll we'll see and i suppose that for me is kind of the unanswered question of of what that impact is going to be and how people are going to be feeling about the economy not just as adam says the kind of raw numbers but how people are feeling as we go through next year or through 2023 yeah i think it has a really big impact actually and i think um voters tend to and maybe unfairly blame whoever's in power yeah. um, for that. It doesn't, you know, you know. I know that you know Liz, Liz Truss. Just looking back a couple of months uh, ago to 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 her sort of economic, you know, little economic. I don't know what to call catastrophe. it. Catastrophe, turmoil, <laughs> turmoil, catastrophe, whatever you like to call it. Um, obviously that was partly caused by her, but partly caused by the fact that everything was already going down the pot yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, but people blame her for that, and people are always now going to blame her. Um, for starting that that interest rate hike. And I think people will continue to blame the Conservative Party, whether that's rightly or wrongly, whether it is their fault or not. Um, and, you know, we have seen this in, you know, in the past and we've seen, you know, in the 90s, the Tories get kicked out after an economic situation went down, even though it started to pick up by the time the 97 election came around, things were starting to look a little bit better. And then obviously Tony Blair got, got the... Um, yeah and i spoke to a pollster i spoke to a pollster who was saying that the problem is at the moment is that the tories are coming from such a low base that everything at the moment is blamed on them doesn't matter what happens they're getting blamed for everything because of the you know of everything that's been going on and so therefore they have been in power for you know 12 years and i think that's kind of fair enough really um (laughs) well um, yeah i suppose so and obviously i think you know what adam mentioned a minute ago about do people feel better off in their pockets like that's going to be a really cool message for labor and they've already started to get that out already like people like rachel reeves are, are starting to make that message do you feel better off under the tories do you feel like your lives have got better in the last 12 years or not and that's going to be a really powerful argument for them to use in the next election and coming up to it yeah absolutely um and you, you touched on on labor there that's kind of the, the third question is really that will labor hold on to this massive polling lead they, they they've now got i think at the start of 2022 they were maybe about four or five points ahead they're now 
constantly sort of 20, 25, sometimes 30 points ahead. We saw an MRP poll in December suggesting that they have something like a 300 seat majority. You know, for me, the big question is, you know, can Starmer can maintain that lead he's someone whose personal ratings have sort of lagged behind a bit of Labour's overall polling lead you know can he present a vision I suppose for what a Labour government would do can they look like a government in waiting or they're going to continue to rely on the Conservatives making a mess of things you know Adam what are your kind of thoughts on that you you went to see the kind of Labour their business meeting Mm. they had with lots of people in the city in December you know what do you kind of feel there do you think they are moving in that direction What's so interesting about the polling at the moment is that, Alan, you talked about how Keir Starmer, although he's relatively popular, he's not as popular as his party. Yeah. Whereas Rishi Sunak is far more popular than his party. Like if it wasn't for... Um, as Boris Johnson often was as well. Absolutely, yeah. And, and if you look at um, if you look at Sunak's individual polling ratings, we're actually, I think it was in late October, um, which I appreciate was a few months ago now, but I think the general pitch is still true that we were briefed by the polling god himself, Sir John Curtis, and he made the point that if you, if you look at Sunak's individual ratings, they're actually really good, um, yeah. all things considered. However, the, the Tory party brand is an absolute mess after the Partygate scandal and all the other um, damage done by the Boris Johnson time, uh, the Liz Truss calamitous um, so-called mini-budget, quite major in its implications, I think. Um, so the question is, can Rishi Sunak lift the popularity of his party in line with him? If he can do that, hist- historical polling tells you that the, the Tories could potentially still win the next election. But that's an absolutely massive if, isn't it? Because you look at the things that... It's are a long coming, way back. It's a long way back. You, know, you look at the things that are coming down, down the line. We have this very difficult winter that we are right in the middle of with industrial action um, and j- 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 just this general sense that nothing's really working in, in the country, like things that you, things you used to take for granted and used to regard as sort of simple everyday things are becoming increasingly difficult. Then you mentioned interest rates a few moments ago. Then you've got energy bills. Um, the NHS, we haven't talked about the NHS yet and what's going on there with you know, enorm- enormous backlogs. So you look at what's coming in the next year or so right now and you look at where are the opportunities for Rishi Sunak to really shift the dial in regards to his party's popularity right now I mean underlining that point because so much can happen in politics as us three know fine well uh, from this from 2022 um, there don't seem to be any opportunity there don't seem to be any obvious opportunities where Rishi Sunak can really turn it around no Um, no, no. I suppose that, that's my point. I suppose in touch is that, is that the Tories are going to continue to 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 sit low in the polls. You know, Keir Starmer at the moment. A lot of people are talking about that. That's Labour's polling lead is is maybe a little soft because it's about people being angry at the Conservatives, not necessarily being very pro Labour or pro Labour's vision. You know, yeah. do you think that Starmer is going to be able to set out that vision and become, you know? beloved i suppose in a way that will win an election you know because you, people do vote for a leader people do look to that person and say do i want that person to be in number 10 you know do you think that he's going to be able to convert that this year and if so what does he need to do to to win over papers like yours i suppose and also to to win round voters who switched from labor to conservative in 2019 
I think we should not forget that Keir Starmer is not Tony Blair, and like despite people comparing him to to him, like they're not the same. Like he doesn't yeah. have that same star quality magic. I talk about this all the time. Magic sort of sparkle dust that some politicians have, like Boris has, like Tony Blair had. I don't think Keir Starmer has that. Um, let's not forget that this pollingly that Labour have at the moment is incredibly soft, it, and it also doesn't it doesn't mean that it's it's there. I don't think he can take it for granted, and he knows no. that. Um, and I think obviously we've seen actually obviously we have had some incredibly dire dire polls for the Conservatives, but then since Rishi's come back in, he's not really had a bounce. But I think he, he has had a couple of points back in a few polls, and I could see that kind of being a Tory strategy to slowly claw that back, not over one particular topic or one particular issue, but just generally be like sort of offer a stability, offer that sort of like we're getting on with stuff in the background and try and claw that back over time. And for Keir, obviously, he is obviously riding on this wave of the Conservatives um, messing everything up. And he's really is just sitting back and, and enjoying the fruits of that Labour. Um, but for him to win the next election, he's really got to come forward and show how Labour are going to do it differently, how he is different, what is his vision and really what are his policies? I think looking looking out, you know, we are at 18 months, probably two years from an election probably um it could be could be sooner but right now i i personally don't think our readers really know what Keir Starmer stands for, what his vision is, and really how he would do things differently. And that's going to be, I think, Keir's, Keir's test in the next sort of 18 months to two years. He's had quite a defensive, he's had quite a defensive position, I suppose, on a lot of stuff. And I think they've tried to sort of tread this fine line. Mm. I, I mentioned strikes earlier, but we didn't really sort of get into it. You know, but Adam, I think there's going to be a lot more questions about what Labour's position is on strikes, because we're going to continue to see strikes at, through 2023. Um, there's not these kind of deals being done between lots of government departments and, and, and bodies around the these these kind of strikes. Yeah, he can't just come out and say, you know, we do it differently and not say how. And I think eventually like voters will get tired of that and go, well, how are you going to do it differently? And I understand that he wants to give space before the next election to, to set that out in his own time. But, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to start telling voters what you do stand for. Well, yeah, because I always remember, I remember someone saying, like, you know, the, 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 the thing if you're opposition leader is that people say, what would you do? And you go, well, I'll tell you what I wouldn't do. I tell you what I wouldn't do. I wouldn't do what the the government are doing currently. And at, at some point, when you get towards, I suppose there is still there is still time. You know, like I say, two years is still still you know, eighteen months is still a fairly long time to be able to do so. But Adam, do you get a sense to speak to people within Labour that they are they are thinking about how setting out that vision and really kind of cementing that polling lead, taking it from mm. a kind of a soft stage where people are against the Conservatives and making them pro Labour. Well. I think, you know, Labour's had leads of what, like 20 to 25% at some point bigger than that. I think when you speak to people in Labour, you do well to find people who sincerely believe that that will be the outcome of the next election. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like they, they, they treat those leads as almost um, as almost um, superficial. Yeah. As, um, and as Tash said um, about the government strategy of... Um, gradually clawing ground back. I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, I, when I was chatting to someone sort of in, in the government, uh, I think it was just last week, they said that, look, don't expect some huge spike in support for the Conservatives. But what we hope to see is every fortnight or so, a very slight change, maybe 1%, 2% sort of um, heading in the right direction for the Conservatives. Um, with Starmer, you know, let, let, I think a criticism of Keir Starmer, which Natasha touched on then, is that in his 
in his desire to be seen as sort of level-headed and reasonable and someone you can trust, he's he's sometimes too cautious and sits on the fence and is perhaps nervous of saying something which um, will be jumped on or, or, or will be seen as um, controversial. And potent, I mean, potentially, um, given, on the, given when the next election could be, like 2023 could well be the last full year before the next general election. And that does sound like a long time away, but it's really not in political terms. You think about when campaign mode officially, so unofficially begins, obviously you have official, um, official periods for campaigning, but parties enter campaign mode unofficially long before that. And I think early next year, early this year, I should say, well, this year, um, Keir Starmer, I think, is going to come under a lot of pressure to start fleshing out what he actually wants to do. Because if, if he is, you know, right now we'd say you'd say he's probably going to be prime minister. You'd, I think that's not controversial to say. Like, obviously, there's a lot, a lot can happen. We've stressed that point. It's a long time away. But right now, you'd say that's the likely outcome right now. And with that in mind, I think he will come under pressure to explain. It's a very different position to be, is it? You know, being seen as opposition or being seen as gov- a government in waiting and a, and a prime minister in waiting is a, is a different set of pressures, isn't it, to being an opposition leader miles behind? Yeah, yeah. It is. And we know that, we know that like, Keir Starmer and the Labour Party are, are having extensive talks with the civil service. Uh, and we know that they're, you know, engaging. We, you know, you see it across government. They're, they're talking to Labour parts and they're talking to MPs and they're, you know, very much in the stage that we're about to go to a Labour government in the next 18 months. But, you know, that just seems too simplistic for me to, to write the Conservatives off just yet. You know, they are an election we, winning machine, if they're nothing else. Yeah, they, we've they, seen they them do. them off before, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, Alan, you actually asked me about the Labour business day and perhaps in Keir Starmer-esque fashion. I completely... Uh, <laughs> I, can, I completely... Uh, but, what? yeah, so the... Um, for Labour Business Day, yeah, it was interesting because, you know, Tash just mentioned how, like, Labour's chatting to civil servants and everyone who'd be involved in a, you know, handover of power. And it is absolutely true that the world of business, um, as we like to call them, um, are, are taking Labour seriously in a way which certainly I haven't seen in my years of reporting. Uh, at Labour Conference back in September, you looked around the conference hall where you find the various stalls and whatnot, there was so much business representation. Mm. Um, it felt like a much more corporate yeah. event, which is indicative of the fact that at the very least, Labour are on the pitch. Um, and they like what they see. Businesses are, are liking what they're seeing from yeah. Labour. And, and a lot of them are not. I don't think there's obviously a little bit of chicken and egg situation. Are they jumping on the bandwagon because they feel that this is going to be the next Labour uh, government? So that's where they go to. But, but, but if you're Labour, like, that's you, you, you're fine with that. Like, you're, you're, you know, similarly, I've got friends who work in public affairs, you know, and, and they've gone from these companies have gone from hiring former spads former conservative spads to hiring former labor staffers and and, and those people in labor circles because they can see that that's the kind of liaison they'll, they'll have to be so but look, we'll move on to number four which we've kind of touched on already which is can the tory party come back together again you know will sunak be able to outline a kind of a vision that keeps those warring wings of his party together or is it gonna crumble and, and break apart we've already seen people jumping ship lots of high profile mps said they're gonna step aside or not run again you know can he stave off these rebellions maybe get a good result in may 
and also maybe what happens if he doesn't, which we've, we've kind of touched on previously. And I just, you know, for me, it feels at the moment like there is about four or five different parties within the Conservative Party, you know, which is kind of always the case. But those fractures come to the surface when things are uh, times are tough. You know, Natasha, do you think there is a way of of putting back the party together in a way that you know maybe Boris Johnson was the last person to do in 2019? I think that Rishi can. Um, it'll be harder for him than it was for Boris um, because a he's not got that election that he's just won right so obviously the the, the, what 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 Boris was really good at was was drawing that coalition coalition of voters in all parts of the country together um and Rishi doesn't have that mandate um that that Boris can point to to say you know I I did do that um but I think his his style is quite managerial I think he's quite strategic and I think that he you know I think he will be very aware of this. I think, you know, he'll know that there are people out in the, in the party out to get him. He's known that for ages. And, you know, he's even as Chancellor, when we saw the tensions bubbling between him and Boris and different parts of the Conservative Party, he's no stranger to to rogue briefings and people inside. No, people are still promoting the kind of stabbed in the back theory already, aren't they? Of like you Exactly. Know, and, yeah. But I think that I think he does realise this. Um, I don't know how much he believes in it. A lot of it is confidence in a way, isn't it? And a lot of Conservative MPs already do believe that the next election is lost. I don't know whether we'll see that um, reversal in the next sort of 18 months and get some sort of fight back from them. But at the moment, it does feel a bit like that everybody is sort of accepting mm. uh, this sort it's of... It's kind of a dangerous loss. place to be. It's party management's difficult it when is. everyone thinks they're going to be lo- they're going to lose the next election anyway. Yeah, it is, it's really tricky. And I do think that at some point before the next election, the government and, you know, Rishi probably will have a reshuffle to get some more people back in um, sort of doing Conservative Party campaigning, party chairman roles, get all of those roles filled with real campaigners. And Boris will be a, a part of that. You know, there are many red wall MPs who go, yeah, I want him. I'm putting him on my leaflet now, uh, and I'm I'm getting him campaigning in my area because he's an election winner. Um, so yeah, while we do have all of these different parts of the Conservative Party, like you say, I don't think that's anything new. I think we sort of tend to to forget that this is always something the Conservative Party's always been an incredibly broad party. Yeah, um, they're a big tent. Yeah, yeah. Rishi knows that he's got he's got people on his on on, on one side of the party that don't like him. He knows he's going to have a lot of people that, that are never going to get on board with him. Um, but I think there is a good chance that he can he can pull that together. And like I say, I wouldn't, still wouldn't ever want to rule him out winning another election. No, Adam, um, we talked about sort of Tory strategy. I remember speaking to someone earlier who was saying that it was, you know, it was like um, David Canzini was talking about like barnacles off, get the barnacles off the boat, you know, just focus on the things that you really, that you really need to. Don't get into broader kind of policy issues. And in a sense, almost, almost govern like you're a minority government rather than a majority one to just try and focus on those things and try and pull everyone in the in the same direction it's a, it's a massive job you know do you think sunak is up to it essentially in 2023 well it just it, i mentioned earlier how heading in you know heading into christmas there was this truce in the tory party like the various yeah. factions who um, who may have disagreed on policy and perhaps in, in, in a, at a different point would have taken the fight to Downing Street over this and that, but generally, you know, decide let's just wait until 2023. There was this sense that we just need Tory party unity, we just need calm. Um, but equally, it does feel like with this Tory party that all it needs is a bit of a poke, um, a, a, bit, yeah. a bit of a shove perhaps, and an almighty fight could break out. Um, the Tory party, I think you both said, is, is well, it's the most successful election winning machine in a democracy in the world. 
a big part of that has been the fact it is a broad church party. It does represent people from across the conservative um, spectrum. But right now, I remember having a chat with a, with an MP the other, the other week, and he said that it's quite hard to find things which connect all Tory MPs now. Like, you, you can yeah. pluck an MP from one side of the party and compare them with an MP from the other side of the party, and this to, to find things they have in common policy-wise, or perhaps it's, it's, it's increasingly difficult. Um, however, um, the Tory part, one of the reasons, another reason the Tory party has been good at winning elections is because it's good at coming together to win elections. It's good, in a way the Labour Party really isn't, I think, it's good at putting their differences aside and coming together in the name of victory. Mm. And could that be the economy? You know, we've seen time and time again that, you know, under David Cameron and George Osborne, that was their overriding goal was we're going to fix the economy and we're going to get Britain back on track mm. or whatever. And that, that was and only we can be trusted United. to do so, right? Yeah, exactly. And if Rishi can say, you know, I'm the one to do that and point to him and Jeremy Hunt having some sort of success in the next 18 months with picking the economy up, driving inflation down, paying back some debt that could be a uniter for the party ahead of an election. But, you know, it depends. On, <laughs> again, depends on that delivery, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and also, I think, I think, Alan, and I, I wrote I wrote this in a piece that went out over Christmas. Um, I think this, the summer is going to be a really key time for the Tory party. We have the mayor local elections, the results of which clearly are going to be pawed over and indicative. But also, I mean, I understand that in December, on December 5th, we had that CCHQ deadline of MPs announcing whether they're going to stand down. I understand that there's a number of Conservative MPs who told CCHQ in December, yeah, I'm, I'm planning to run again, but we're actually going to, going to decide in the summer because by that point, yeah. the May elections are out of the way. And there's just a sense that if by the summer, the, the polling hasn't really shifted in a big way, the party finds itself in a similar position, that at that point they'll decide to um, stand down. And Natasha, you talked about how, I think you talked about sort of the pessimism in the Tory party and the dangers of thinking you're going to lose the next election, that sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. I think in the summer, if you start to see lots of MPs announcing they're standing down, then that could only fuel this sense yeah. of defeatism. and Yeah, it's quite demoralising, isn't it, when you sort of see that, yeah. If the economic picture looks rosier, if the mere local elections... Um, aren't as bad as the Tory party fears. And it, there's an interesting question as to just how bad those elections can actually be for the Tories, i.e. what's actually up for grabs there. Um, if they don't turn out to be that bad and MPs decide to themselves, actually, you know what, I think I've got a fighting chance of the next election, then we could see a whole different narrative. Yeah, just before we move on to the the, the last big question, you know, we talked about Boris Johnson and kind of the the spectre that he still has over hangs over the party. We saw him he both him and Liz Truss backed an amendment, Simon Clark's amendment on um, wind farms. We saw Boris Johnson, I think, uh, signing up to Jonathan Gullis's uh, ten minute rule motion, which obviously was kind of uh, again against the, you know trying to force the government's hand on stuff. You know, do you, how much do you see him working in the background? And do you think that you know, as as Adam says, these May elections. You know, do you think that Boris Johnson sees that as the final opportunity for a kind of a tilt 
at the at the top job do you think or do you think that the 2023 is the year maybe when Boris Johnson finally toddles off into the sunset uh gets on his goes back to his plow as, as Cincinnatus uh, would have done and, and makes and makes more money in the private sector I think I think he's still going to be around in British politics for the next for the foreseeable future whether he has another go at it I I think it's too early to even think about that. And I think he knows that, that it's too early. To well, the Privileges that. Committee have still not decided on, you know, the reasons for him standing down the first time. Exactly. So. Yeah. So he's got to get that through that hurdle first. Um, but I know that he, you know, he's been lot at the end of last year was touring around constituencies, doing their association dinners and speaking. And, you know, he's he, like I say, there are Tory MPs in the Red Wall that are really keen to get him on their leaflets, get him to come out and visit their areas and campaign with him on the doorstep. And there'll be people like Boris, uh, like Pretty Patel, I'm sure will also be a sort of part of that um, because they're popular. They're popular with the party members, yeah. and you know, we we forget that actually Rishi was very unpopular with the party members. And so. it's unfinished business, I suppose, for them. Like they they feel that they they didn't it didn't come to a natural conclusion for them. People like Boris and yeah. Pretty Patel, there was more to be done. Yeah, they feel that there was more to be offered, more to be done. And you know, our post bag over the summer in the Sun newsroom was, you know, why why are we kicking this guy out? We yeah. you know we know that he's done. You know, he's not handled some things properly, but we don't want to see him go. And we do think that he's got more to, to give. And, you know, the, the bring back Boris vote and uh, was was a strong one. Um, so I don't think he's going anywhere. And I think he knows he's still got that support. Um, whether he turns it into something, you know, at the end of the day, he decided not to run in, in the last leadership contest because he knew that he wouldn't be able to do anything. He knew that, it, you know, Team Rishi would make his life a, a nightmare if, if he did. Um, but he could have done and he knows that he could have done. He knows he had that support in the party. Um, so, yeah, I don't think we've seen the end of him just yet. But whether he makes a proper comeback, tries to do another tilt the chop job, I'm not quite sure about that. It would be very Boris if he just sort of let that be his legacy, you know, and just let it sort of be, oh, you know, I could have done it, but I decided not to. And, you know, I had this. What, but actually, you know what? I've decided for the good of the country. I'm I'm not going to do it again. Yeah, and, and works on his memoirs. Um, so Adam, we'll just move on to the, the the last question, which is a, a bit different, but I think one that's been kind of thrown into focus in the past uh, few weeks, kind of unfortunately. So is is can Westminster finally rid itself of harassment problems and behavioural problems? We've seen. Lots of issues recently with MPs being suspended, being kicked out, even going to prison in, in 2022. And there's a real feeling, I think, that there's been a failure to grasp the situation since the kind of last big scandals, you know, of, of 2017 and, and 2018. The kind of incoherent complaint system. You've seen some MPs named, some not named, some investigated by the party, some investigated by the police, some investigated by bodies within Parliament, you know. Is that going to be fixed? And also, kind of the underlying causes behind the reason why we see lots of these cases come to the, come to the fore. Do you know what, Alan? I've I've been doing this job for six years, and I've been in the lobby for four years, I think. And I think every time we I've sat down to have one of these sort of big conversations, either rounding up or previewing, this question always comes up. We always yeah. say, "Is this is this the moment when?" Um, there is serious change when things improve in a meaningful way. And clearly the fact we're having this, we're having this discussion again, the answer has been no. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we could devote hours of podcast to this, but I think right now, Parliament as a workplace, as a place of work and the structures within it for raising complaints, for those complaints being dealt with, are fundamentally inadequate. They yeah. don't work, clearly. They haven't worked. 
the fact they haven't worked, I think, deters people from referring to them, leaving them with little alternative. And right now, I mean, you know, there's a lot of chat about how things need to change. When the Me Too movement really exploded, was that a few years ago now? I remember there was, there was a lot of chat about how this is the moment things change. And since then, things haven't really changed. Yeah, the, 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 there was the creation of the, the Independent Complaints and Grievance Service was brought in, but it wasn't, not all the recommendations were brought in. Lots of the cases that have come through that have taken an inordinate amount of time to come to fruition, which again, doesn't breed kind of confidence. We're, there's a Speaker's Commission led by uh, the Common Speaker, Lindsay, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, into changing things. You know, Tash, you think that we are going to see meaningful change or is part of the issue that essentially, while you always have politicians helping to decide these things, they're never going to necessarily put in place something which really holds them to account. Yeah. And like Adam and you both have touched on, um, the, the, the systems that are in place are incredibly complicated. There's, I think, three or four different types of complaints procedures, depending on where you are, like whether you're on the parliamentary state or not, whether you're an MP yeah. or not, um, who you want to complain to, do you want to complain to the party or the, you know, the parliament sort of system. And yes, it does take a very, very long time. Um, you know, are we ever going to completely solve this? No, because it's it's a problem that can't ever be completely solved um, in a way. Um, it's like trying to say you want to stamp out, you know, crime or like stop all road deaths. It's just, it's just not, I don't think it's possible to do to completely eliminate it um but equally you know we have made a lot of progress um and i know it's actually kind of it's it's sad to to, to sort of say it in these terms but you know my colleague noah hoffman who wrote the chris pincher story which obviously led to the downfall of boris um it just shows how a how very important this is still we also had a by-election a couple of weeks ago in uh chester with the labor mp who was accused of sexually harassing someone as well um the fact that we can go from this being reported a system having a look at the complaint to a, to a period where that mp in question decided to step down and have a by-election does show that there is you know we are making progress in terms of doing that. We, you know, right. that, it, it's sad to have- the problem is the problem is that sometimes progress looks like an increase in cases because we're actually seeing cases being reported. And therefore, you know, if you look at the list of MPs currently uh, under investigation, the list of independent MPs, there's a, there is a large number, you know, both conservative and some Labour MPs as well. But, you know, I still feel that there isn't, there still is that lack of confidence in, parliament as a workplace really and, and are those are are we going to see a real change that's what i think in, in 2023 i don't don't particularly think there's going to be any sort of eureka moment i don't you know i don't see that you know there being another sort of sort of pestminster westminster sort of style scandal erupting um like you know we probably did see with pincher around around that time but it's just something that's going to low level bubble i think in the background and, and we might get the odd case the odd entry another complaint another suspension another by-election um rather than it being a big a big part of the westminster scene um which yeah you can say is is, is a bit of a sad indictment of, of a failure of westminster workplace to, to really get a grips on it I think we've identified sort of two different things, haven't we? Firstly, we have the issue of sort of the when when a complaint is raised, how we deal, how it ha- how it's dealt with practically. So Natasha talks about how there's been a case recently of a complaint being raised against an MP, um, and that MP forced to stand down by election, new MP. So so in that case, you could so you could say. Practically, that's an example of how 
although while there's still a long way to go, we, there have been positive steps forward. But then also... Although even in, even in that case, though, it took a long time for, the, for that to come through. The, the MP was against it, you know, and, and they stood down. You know. Yeah, but then there's also the culture of Parliament, which is a completely different thing. The culture of Parliament, i.e. Yeah. how people in positions of authority treat others, treat those perhaps junior to them. And that is something that's not about so much practicalities. That is about culture. And that is a whole different question. And it's not just unique to Parliament, although it's certainly exacerbated by structures within Parliament, but it's not unique to parliaments across society in different professions and in, in different settings. And that is a whole different question, which clearly isn't going to be resolved in, in the year 2023. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, 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 those power structures, I think, I, I think are in place. I just think that people look to Westminster as being, a, a, you know, perhaps somewhere that should set an example. And I think, unfortunately, we've seen a, a lot of reasons why it's been setting a very bad example. I guess maybe there are structural issues at play, the fact that you lock all these people away from, uh, lock all in a building with lots of alcohol away from home, et cetera, et cetera. There are lots of underlying reasons why there's you know, there's sometimes bad behavior but i think broadly overall yeah, well, you know. yeah but, but i think i think so what so there is there is a paradox and a depressing one in that parliament should be a standard bearer in public life but yeah it's a uniquely terrible place <laughs> to deal with this cultural problem yeah, yeah absolutely right well just before we, we wrap things up then i want to ask you both what are your kind of i love asking people for predictions because i love seeing them wince uh yeah when you ask them for their, well, their predictions for, for 2023 you know what what do you kind of predict i mean obviously i'm not expecting there to be maybe three prime ministers in a year like we had in 2022 but what what are you kind of expecting to see you know the things that you, that, that you cover i know obviously tash you've got a lot of environment stuff do you, is there any sort of big things you're expecting to come in that area what's kind of what to kind of look out for in 2023 sounds like adam might want to start with that one i think <laughs> what, with environmental predictions, yeah, predictions uh, in general <laughs> um I'll, I'll give you one alan um, I mean, and this this has huge potential to age badly. I think in the year 2023 that the UK and the EU will finally reach a deal on the Northern Ireland Protocol. That's a good prediction. Ooh, okay. I guess it's and then the second part. I guess is a prediction as much as it is a hope. I think that on the back of that deal, the Northern Ireland institutions will get back up and running. Right. Well, you heard it here first. You heard it here first. first I'm going to go quite, I'm gonna go quite simple with mine. I yeah. wish you will survive the year. Yeah. Okay. I think there might be a few stumbling blocks, but I don't see him. Like there are some MPs talking about sort of another sort of summer coup against Rishi if things don't improve. I don't think we're going to see that. I don't think that we're going to face Rishi is going to face another leadership challenge in the next year um, just because of the fragility. That, that you know and the, the instability that that would cause i think he's probably safe for a little while um even if his tory mps and his party might be a bit fractured i, I don't think they're going to try and boot him out mm. okay well that's that's good well uh, i'll have to get you both back this time uh this time next year and we can we can see how how well or how badly those predictions have aged i'm gonna not give you a prediction because that's not my job so that's, that's fine my prediction. it is a bit of a cop out but you know that's uh, that's my job i'm the host so i get to decide That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day-a-week newsletters by clicking the link in the top right-hand corner of the website. Thanks to my guests, Adam Payne and Natasha Clark. Thanks to you all again for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome or email us via news at politicshome.com. 
But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst, and this has been The Rundown. <laughs>